live in a world plagued by pornography, and people are looking for help. When an individual struggles with pornography, they often turn to their church leader for that help. How does a leader help a person overcome the shame of this issue and start seeing positive progress? How can a leader help youth to open up about struggles with pornography? What are some lasting, proven tactics that actually make a difference? In order to help, Leading Saints has created the Liberating Saints Library with more than 20 presentations featuring individuals who have a unique perspective or expertise around this topic. Three of those most popular sessions are available to watch now. Simply text the word LEAD to 474747 to start watching now or visit leadingsaints.org liberating. Hi, I'm Bryant Bell. I'm the Executive Secretary in my ward in Antelope, California. And I've enjoyed listening to the conferences and emails that I receive from Leading Saints. It's helped me understand how I can serve better and support those, the members of my ward and outside of my ward more effectively. Hey, thanks for hitting play on this podcast, the Leading Saints podcast. We welcome you back. This is Kurt Frankum, your host. Now, if you're not new to Leading Saints, this is a point where you can hit that 30-second forward button on the podcast player. And while I talk with all the newbies here who just discovered Leading Saints about what we are, we are a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And we do that through content creation like this podcast. We have a website at leadingsaints.org and uh, virtual events, in-person events. We've got just phenomenal resources, libraries full of different uh, interviews or presentations that will hopefully inspire Latter-day Saints to be better prepared to lead. Now, in this episode, we talk about addiction. Now, typically when you hear addiction, the word addiction in the context of, of church leadership, you think, oh, pornography, another pornography episode. But no, this one is not about pornography. It's about addiction to meth, heroin, really hardcore drugs that that some Latter-day Saints fall into, and as leaders, as loved ones, as parents, as friends, we have to don't know what to do. We don't know what to say. Do we wait till they hit rock bottom? I mean, how do we shepherd them through this? And is there really recovery? Is that really possible for individuals? Well, in this interview, I talk with Kelly Thompson and Jessica Butterfield about their own personal experience. These two women are remarkable, remarkable, so inspiring. I've had the opportunity to read uh, Kelly's book. This you know, I talked about it throughout the interview. I love her book. You've got to read it. It's so good. And Jessica has started a podcast and then found out at the end they're actually joining forces to uh, produce a podcast. But both of them are recovering addicts of heroin, meth. Kelly spent some time on the streets in prostitution in order to facilitate her her drug habit. I mean, just like heavy, intense stories, but with a beautiful, beautiful ending. And a beautiful redemption, I should say. Their story isn't over. And it's so inspiring to, to talk with them. And I had the opportunity to, to conduct this interview via a Facebook Live. So people were commenting and listening as they were going. And it was just, I just had to share it through the podcast with all of you as well. So you're going to love it. Here is my interview with Jessica Butterfield and Kelly Thompson. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, 
we were immediately put in a position of loneliness. The loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability. Today I have Kelly Thompson and Jessica Butterfield. Kelly, how are you? I'm good. I'm doing good. How are you doing? Good. Jessica, good. how are you? Doing good. Doing good. Very good. Well, I'm excited to to have a conversation here. And this is one that's going to be very different than really any that we've had before. You know, we've talked a lot about addiction in in the world of leading saints and but typically is and I'm even saying unfortunately, sometimes we default to you know, pornography addiction or sexual addictions that, that way. And when in reality, substance abuse and addiction in that realm is it's easily as it's turned a it termed a, a pandemic, you know, it's just ever present, especially in our religious community and needs to be talked more about. And so let's jump into it. I want to hear your stories. Maybe Kelly, or we'll start with yours. I know your story pretty well since I read your entire book and loved it. I can't oh, recommend it yeah. enough. And uh, it, yeah. It literally made me cry at the end. And I'm not a crier. Okay. It literally made me cry at the end. So, oh, that's uh, so sweet. Thank you. So make us all cry, Kelly. Go ahead. Sure. Oh, yeah. No pressure. Okay. Uh, so my name is Kelly and I'm a recovering drug addict and alcoholic. I also have struggled with a lot of mental illness in my life, anxiety and depression that showed up really young. And and the way that I coped with that anxiety and depression is I turned to drugs and alcohol really young, just as an early teenager. And for me, those behaviors quickly turned into addiction and alcoholism. And it became really my life pattern to, to struggle and to you know try really hard to put my life together and make good choices and do what my older sisters were doing, which was making good choices and going to BYU and getting married in the temple. And then here I am just not having that life experience at all and really, really struggling with my self-identity, self-harm, you know, which was back in the day before we talked about self-harm. So it seemed very extreme and very scary for my family. And I went ahead and had a very, very colorful life with uh, those consequences really following me and my family and my loved ones all the way through. And so, yeah, those addictions really over time, like addiction does, it progresses and gets worse. And so as the years progressed, you know, my addictions got worse. And at 38 years old, I, I found heroin to add to my meth and alcohol problem and very quickly lost everything. And I went out onto the, left my children with my sister and went out onto the streets of Salt Lake City and began supporting my habit with prostitution. And that became my life for several years and, and had a really difficult journey. And through it all, I had lost my testimony. My family left the church when I was 13. And so, you know, and I had started making those choices. So everything kind of happened all at once. And, um, and so I was very angry with God very angry. The church definitely became a punching bag for me. And, and I was, I had turned really very much against the church. In fact, had joined local uh, Mormon groups and all of that, just really angry and trying to find my way and not understanding. And as I got into the darkest of the dark and the, and the hardest part of my journey, I began to 
have an experience, have some spiritual experiences that helped open my eyes that that there really is a spiritual war happening around me and that I belonged and had chosen to be part of the light, not part of the darkness. And when I held on to that idea and understood that, you know, that there's so much more than this temporal world happening around me and that maybe what I had learned as a child was true, I held on to that and began to pray. And in some of the worst situations that someone can be in, some of the most terrifying and and scary situations, I began to pray and God really truly became my best friend in in the darkest of the dark. And I think of it a lot when I read, I think it's section 121 of DNC where, you know, it's it's the prophet and he's in Liberty Jail and he's having this experience of why is it so hard, but it ended up being such a sacred experience for him. I think about that at the end of my using that it was such a sacred, difficult time, but exactly what I needed. And Heavenly Father knew exactly what I needed to help build the willingness so that I could turn to him in humility and begin to see what he could do with my life. And I've been clean and sober for four and a half years now. The sister missionaries are a big part of my testimony as well. They showed up in kind of a miraculous moment and the church did a really great little His Grace video about my story and they just did such a good job. But that was an eye-opening moment for me that Heavenly Father really is there and loves me and cares about me and did not define me like the adversary had defined me or wanted me to believe you know, that I was all of these labels and all of this stigma that I was a prostitute and a bad mother and a, and a junkie and all these names that I had given myself over the years. And then here comes Heavenly Father, who is like, nope, I'm going to meet you right where you are. And you're just a loved child of God. And I can turn this huge mess you've made of your life and help you turn it into something useful for other people. Sorry, now I'm going to cry. <laughs> And that's exactly what he's spent the last four and a half years doing is is helping to release that shame. And I work a really rigorous 12-step recovery program and I work with others and, and share my story because I really believe that it's meant to be shared because the Savior really can come in and change lives and change hearts and and help with this horrible disease of addiction is you know, it's just taking so many of us out there. People are not surviving it. And I just want to be one of those voices that says, you know what, you could do the same thing for all of these years and then and then find a different way. And life is so different than what I ever thought it could be. And I'm so very, very grateful for, you know, all the recovering addicts who came before me, who found the way and and stood up and shared their story with me because it was through their experiences I was able to have the hope that, okay, if they can do this, I can do this too. And so, yeah, that's, you know, that's my story in a little nutshell anyway. <laughs> that's great. So inspiring. I love it. Uh, Jessica, let's jump into to your story. Where does it begin for you? It's interesting listening to Kelly's story. And I'm so grateful I have the opportunity to speak with her because I think her story is maybe what people would expect when you hear the term drug addict. Usually people end up homeless and on the streets. And mine was very different from that, but I still experienced the same sorrow and suffering that addiction entails. So I grew up in a small town here in Utah County. I've lived in Utah my entire life. My family went to church. I was raised LDS, baptized at the age of eight. 
And then around 12 years old, my family had become inactive. And so the gospel fell out of my life and I wasn't really aware of it. I didn't understand most of it. And unfortunately, my life just kind of went in the wrong direction. At 12 years old, I was introduced to drugs and alcohol. And from an early time, I liked it. It wasn't something I used often, but similar to Kelly, I had anxiety and depression and these certain issues that I wasn't aware of. And so I turned to the drugs and alcohol. And by the time I was 16 and a half, I was a heroin addict. I was addicted to heroin. I had been using pills, drinking alcohol excessively. I'm really a recovering heroin addict and alcoholic. And I was in that addiction for four years, which isn't a long time compared to some people like Kelly, who was in it for a lot longer. But it was long enough to feel that low, low place to feel like I wasn't even deserving of living because I hated who I was. I hated what I had done. I hated the person I had become. And I was just a lost person. And at that point in my life, when I was 20 years old, withdrawing from heroin had completely destroyed so many aspects of my life. I didn't even know if I believed in God. And I certainly didn't want to believe in the Mormon God because I was one of those people that was very against the church. But I was desperate and I wanted help and I wanted to change. And I didn't know how I could, but I decided to attend an LDS 12-step meeting that's sponsored by LDS Family Services. So I walked into this meeting in February of 2011 in desperation, withdrawing from heroin, feeling sick, feeling low, feeling lost. And I experienced grace. I experienced hope. I experienced the power of the priesthood and received a priesthood blessing that completely changed my life. And I decided I was going to try life God's way. I didn't even know for sure if he was there. I didn't know if he was listening. But after I experienced a priesthood blessing that was quite powerful, I I just decided to try. What could it hurt in trying, right? And that first year, there were struggles. I never relapsed with heroin or drugs, but I did struggle with alcohol for a time. But I worked the steps and I learned of the gospel and my faith grew every time I went. And through every step I did, my faith grew into something more. And I began and kept out the repentance process for a long time. And three months shy of being two years clean, I was sealed in the temple with my husband, and I just really experienced the transformation of the atonement of Christ. And I experienced it firsthand, going from a person, this girl at 20 years old who who couldn't see a future without drugs, even though I didn't want it. I just couldn't understand how that was possible. I never would have thought I would be here 10 years later, clean and sober, without one relapse talking to other people, sharing my story. And yeah, like I said, my story is a little different. Every addiction is different, but addiction can find its way into every life in different circumstances in different ways. And I think it's a big thing that we're dealing with right now. A lot of kids are the same as me. Even here in Utah, we think we're somewhat safe because we have good communities and good families. But I was able to find heroin at a pretty young age here in a small town in Utah County. And that is still happening. And addiction is finding its way into people's lives. And so I just want to share that there's hope. Recovery is possible. 
And I've experienced that and just want to share it as much as possible with other people. Wow. Those are powerful. Uh, even uh, Melissa here says both amazing stories. You gave them chills. Good job. We're, we're doing, you're doing the work. Here. <laughs> we're getting people crying. So yeah, powerful stories. And a few, a few questions and thoughts come to mind is, you know, obviously nobody wakes up and says, I'll try heroin today or meth and see how that goes. And there's all a lot of talk of, you know, gateway drugs and things like, like what, what, I guess people hearing that, like that maybe they do have a loved one who drinks or, you know, does more, does drugs that aren't as uh, risky. I don't, I don't know what the term would be, but I mean, what do you feel like leads to that point? Or is it just that desperation? I mean, how would you describe that, Kelly? I would describe it as, you know, when I was about seven or eight years old, having that anxiety and depression was sort of like having something winding up inside of me. So the first time I drank alcohol and had this sort of opportunity to then put this chemical onto my body, I would say it felt like a spiritual experience because I immediately, as it hit my system, felt relief and felt better. So once that happened, I was like, oh my goodness, here's a solution to what was going on inside of me. It was clear it was a coping mechanism that worked a lot faster than anything else and worked better. And it came with fun and a party and all of that wrapped around it yeah. as well. And sort of like the rebellious friends. And I, I just, it all kind of came packaged in sort of this, well, this will be fun. And, you know, what, what harm could it do? What's the worst that could happen, right? <laughs> well, turns out, you know, the worst that could happen is, you know, 27 years of, of drug addiction and alcoholism. But as a kid, I just wanted a way out of the pain. I just wanted a way out of the pain. And it seemed to not only like, it just seemed to offer that and more. And so it didn't take long for me to then desire to be around more people who did that. So I began to sort of seek out the groups of people who had, I wanted to try the different drugs and I wanted to, you know, ditch school and drink with my friends during the day and, and go find drugs. I mean, that's, that yeah. became what I did to escape. And would you say like the anxiety and depression you experienced at a young age, was that from a rough upbringing or do you feel like it was just sort of naturally part of your life experience or? I look back and I think, I think most of it was how I'm wired, mm -hmm. but I think it was exacerbated by, you know, some dysfunction in the family and some things going on as well. So it was kind of the perfect storm. I think I'm just wired to be you know, have yeah. depression and anxiety and, you know, there's addiction and alcoholism back in my family. So some of that played a part. And then of course, environment, just earth life in general plays a right. part. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I asked that just because, you know, some parents can maybe think, well, you know, I'm, I'm a good parent generally, you know, I'm not perfect and we have a good home. And so, you know, that maybe isn't a risk because we're keeping an eye on that, but really sometimes it's just how we're wired or different experiences yes, I pushes think one so. way or another, right? Which is so hard as a parent, I think, to watch a child struggling and think, oh, what can you do? So Yeah. And as I go through these questions, those that are watching live on Facebook, I'm monitoring those comments. And so if you have a question that you'd like me to consider asking, uh, put it in the comments and uh, that, that'll be helpful. So Jessica, what about you as far as like that, that progression towards harder drugs and things? And what thoughts come to mind as far as what led down that, that what push that progress. I agree with a lot of what Kelly said. It's interesting when we look at people because we know certain people have more addictive traits than others. And usually that comes with people who have a certain amount of trauma, whatever that might have been, 
Or, I mean, I was kind of like Kelly. I was always an anxious child. Even looking back at a young age, I just was always anxious and kind of dealt with those issues. I don't know if that's just kind of how my brain is wired. So the same way when I tried drugs and I kind of felt that feeling of escape, I just wanted more and more of it. And some people could try a drug and never do it the rest of their lives because they don't get that feeling and they don't have that urge to use it as a coping mechanism. But I did. But one thing that comes to mind when we're talking about it in the sense of the gospel is early on in recovery, I read a book, I can't remember the title, but it talked about how each of us have a void. And I've heard of people who grew up in really good LDS homes who didn't have trauma, who didn't have parents that were divorced, that really never went through anything that was a big problem or bad. But for whatever reason, they found drugs and used it as a coping skill. And I know for me, throughout those teenage years, I did not know the gospel. I did not have any place in my heart or my mind for God. And we feel that void in different ways because we believe in the pre-earth life. Like we always had God's love there, right? And when we come here and we don't have it, like we feel like something's missing. And so some people turn to drugs and alcohol and become addicts such as myself, or we might turn to other destructive behaviors to fill that void. And for me, when I came back to the gospel and I felt God's love and, and I knew it was real, it just filled that and I didn't have to turn to those things anymore. But I agree with everything Kelly said. A lot of it does go back to like having no coping skills at all. So I turned to drugs and then it started with one thing and just led to another very rapidly. And that's how I ended up where I was. Yeah. And so do you remember like the first time maybe you tried, you know, heroin or or meth? Like did the thought is is all rational thought like escape you at that point? Do you just think it's just going to be this time or this I mean, do you try Do you remember that moment when it sort of progressed or did you feel like it was a big step? I can remember the first time doing pills. I mean, I did it because everybody else was doing it. At that point, I was smoking a lot of marijuana and drinking and, you know, I was in that scene. And of course, it was like, well, I want, I want to fit in and whatever. And somewhere I knew it was bad. Somewhere I knew it was wrong. And I can remember at one point saying, OK, I'm not I'm not going to do pills anymore because somewhere I knew it was wrong. And then doing them again a few weeks later. And I can remember telling my friend, like, why did I ever choose to stop this? I feel so good. It was just this intense feeling where all of my worries went away. All of my problems went away. I just, I felt good. So like, why wouldn't I keep doing it when I didn't have anxiety or depression and I was just happy, you know? So you just lose all sense of rationalization. (laughs) Kelly, any thoughts to add there? Yeah, I can relate to that too of the, why would I ever not do this um, until, you know, your life is burning down around you. But somehow even on opiates, it, it your life burning down around you doesn't seem to be a very big motivator because the feeling on opiates is, you know, really covers up any anxiety about anything. So, yeah. So now that you're you're both in recovery and and you tell your story often and and are there any common misconceptions that continue to rise about your about your experience before or about your recovery now that would be worth mentioning? Common misconceptions by, I would say just because addiction is so, it's kind of a confusing disease. It's very complicated in the sense that where does choice end and the disease begin? And so it's very easy 
to look at a an addict in their behavior, especially like a drug addict who's really in the throes of their disease, when they have such, you know, they're just not pleasant to be around. They've, they've become manipulators, they lie, and all of these things that come with being an addict and starting to make those choices and trying to feed that addiction. I would say it's complicated. So sometimes, I guess, I wish more people would understand or be able to see the disease behind it instead of thinking it's always a choice, which can be hard to do. It's hard to love an addict who's in the disease. So not that there's a perfect way to do that, but I I wish more people understood how much of a disease it actually is and how much it actually affects the brain and takes over the survival instincts of a human being. Yeah. That's a great insight because, you know, again, by referencing or using the term disease doesn't mean accountability is removed or right um, but to me it almost gives those loved ones or leaders around them sort of an entry point of hope and empathy and compassion of saying like wow they it's not that they wake up and choose this every day but they are they are trapped to some extent that this is their thinking pattern and their habits and and they need help and even though you may not know how to help them they're not all you know it's not like they chills this every minute of every day, right? That's right. That's exactly right. And I think of it as like, I've described it as, you know, if someone is in a desert and they are dying of thirst, eventually they're going to drink the water. And that's sort of how the brain overpowers the addict. Mm -hmm. It's like, if you're dying of thirst, or let's say you're lit on fire, you're going to jump in the lake in front of you. It almost, that choice is taken from you in the sense that you're in such, you're in such a survival mode. You just do what it takes. And there's a way to break out of that, but, you know, and, and a person has to be ready and willing and humble enough for that. But, you know, but it is truly a disease. Yeah. So. Jessica, any, any misconceptions come to mind? I realize I'm sort of springing some of these questions on you, but. Oh, uh, you're fine. So. Um, yeah, I was just thinking, I agree with everything Kelly talks about. It really does become a disease because it affects a major organ, which is your brain and hijacks it and chemically you become dependent on it. But something I heard that I really liked is the phrase that addicts are not bad people who need to be good. They are sick people who need to get better. And I will always tell people like I never woke up and said, hey, I want to be a drug addict. I want to be addicted to heroin. That sounds fun. Like that's what I want to do. And I will never discount that I did bad things as an addict. I did harmful, hurtful, destructive things in my life that really affected not only myself, but others, my family members, and and a lot of people. So yes, as addicts, we do bad things. But going back to what we talked about before, most addicts become addicts because they have mental health issues underneath that. And so we just need to understand that addicts are not bad people who need to do good. Addicts are sick people who need help. And and I think just viewing at it with a compassionate lens like that kind of helps us be more able to help those people. Yeah. Yeah. That's really helpful. I love that. So you both mentioned sort of that your relationship with the church throughout this, both, you know, maybe not coming from a very active home and then sort of being angry with the church. It was like a, maybe a convenient target in while you're in the midst of your addiction. What uh, like, I'm just thinking from a leadership standpoint, like what's a leader to do when you're like in the thick of your addiction, you know, like what, what got you to finally go to that 12 step program or, or what would, what would you hope a leader would do in the midst of that? Or, you know, the, 
do we just wait around for you to hit rock bottom? You know, that kind of sounds tragic to just wait until it gets worse enough for you to ask for help, but maybe there's no other choice. Any thoughts on that? I feel like this is the hardest question to answer because I, <laughs> I wish there were like this really simple answer to this because it's such an important question. And, and, you know, more even, you know, church leadership have, has that question, but also loving family members who are watching someone dying in front of their eyes or or, you know, if they're dealing with, you know, pornography addiction or other addictions, right? I mean, they are spiritually dying and maybe losing family and all that. It's such a desperate situation. And so it's, I wish there were an easy answer to it. Um, from my experience and from what I've seen working with addicts and, and what I see works more than anything is allowing someone to suffer the consequences of their choices and to not cushion an addicts, basically to allow them to suffer the consequences of their choices. So to not swoop in and take care of the mess that they're making through their choices can really, really help them get to that bottom. And that we call it in recovery, the gift of desperation is so important. So landing in jail isn't always a bad thing. You don't necessarily want to cushion someone landing in jail. You don't necessarily want to cushion someone from, you know, a DWI and all of those things. We want people to feel the consequences because when they do, they're likely to be humbled. And when people are like, are in a state of humility, that's when they can, that's when they're willing to turn to the real solution, which is God. And God is the answer for all of this. What church leadership can do and I, and what family members can do in the meantime is they can pray for their loved one to hit bottom. They can pray for their loved one to get that gift of desperation. That is what I would be praying for and, you know, have those in my life of who I do pray for that, for them, that whatever they need to do to get to that place of humility so that they have an opportunity to turn to the real source of strength, that I want those circumstances to happen. And I know from personal experience that the Lord, while he can't choose for me, if I'm not sure what I need, like to get that willingness, like I'm not sure how to have the willingness, but I want to have the willingness. I can ask for Heavenly Father to help deliver those circumstances for me so that I have the best opportunity possible because He understands me and knows my heart more than anyone else. And so if I want that help, He can help deliver those circumstances for sure. So pray, helping them by giving, helping them get to their gift of desperation. Yeah. Jessica, any thoughts on, on, on that question? And then just what, what was the, what got you to walk into that 12-step meeting? I just think back and look at my life and I just feel like all along I had people planting seeds. There was actually a time when I was around 17, I hit a really low point in my addiction, ended up in therapy in an outpatient program. And I attended some meetings during that time that were LDS meetings, basically because I had to get paperwork signed. But I went to the meetings and the people were just so nice. The missionaries were so nice. The meeting I attended at that time was an all women's meeting. And there were these older sister missionaries that were called to go there. And of course, I relapsed, went back into my addiction for a time. But I think seeds were planted. And I knew the people were sincere and they were kind. And another thing that comes to mind is when I moved back in with my dad, I had some very, <laughs> very faithful home teachers that would come every single week. And they knew I was drinking and doing drugs, but they came every single week, no matter what. And I mean, I had known these people my entire life. I grew up in a small community. 
But they showed up without fail, even the times when I was high and I wouldn't pay attention. And sometimes I, I wasn't there, you know, they, they were just always a constant in my life. And so when I really reached my low point, when I found that humility and had that desire to really change, I knew because of those seeds that were planted that I could go to these meetings and find people who really cared about me. I knew I could go there and I would be accepted. And I didn't know if I believed in God, but I knew that there would be some good people. And in those early, early days, I knew my home teachers were there for me. And when I had a million questions about the gospel, they would spend hours, literally hours with me talking about the gospel and telling me about it and just allowing me to feel the spirit. And I just look back and I'm so grateful for those people who planted those seeds in my life, even if I wasn't ready at the time. I think it's important for us to realize like sometimes we feel helpless because our kids aren't making the right decisions and they're not choosing to listen to the spirit or, or follow whatever it is we want them to. But we can always plant seeds and you just never know what that might lead to in the future. Yeah. Wow. Love that. That's uh, inspiring for sure. So now's the the point of the interview where I finally turn to the notes and and suggestions of <laughs> ideas that you've you've uh, made. But uh, because there is this feeling, you know, we're t- speaking in it like a leadership church leadership dynamic. People hear your story and it's like, wow, this is awesome. Like they found Jesus and here they are back in the gospel. And uh, great, they're fixed. You know, they're let's get them in a calling, and now they're make sure that they have a healthy home life and they, you know, they're just like integrate them into our culture. Right. Obviously. But sometimes, I mean, do you want people to sort of prepare for a relapse? Like, is there things like that you tell your family and friends, like if I do relapse, here's five steps to take, or are you to a point where you feel like that most likely won't happen? Or like, how do you deal with the concept of relapse so far into your recovery at this point? That's a really good question. I think of relapse as being part of being active in the disease. And so, you know, if the, if a relapse were to happen, that would be participating in the disease. So, so no, I'm not, I'm not preparing for that. I, but again, it's, this thing is only done one day at a time. I mean, truly, honestly, recovery teaches me that I will wake up the, in the morning and I ask Heavenly Father for his help to stay clean and sober and abstinent today. And I rely on his strength to do this one day at a time. And I and I stay really close in my recovery program and following and working my steps and staying close to other people and my sponsor and all of that. And so, so no, I don't expect to relapse. I have a lot of hope that I'll be able to go through my life clean and sober all the way through. But again, I, I can only, I stay only in this 24-hour period. And that helps keep it small and realistic and and knowing that I just do this one day at a time with God. So that really helps yeah. keep it in a bite-sized piece. Yeah. No, I like that where it's not like you're thinking it's impossible it will or happen, but each day right. it's like you wake up realizing you need Jesus Christ today to Exactly. Yes, I'm humble brain. I'm humble enough to know like and have been, you know, and I know that this disease is very cunning, baffling and powerful and that if I'm not careful, you know, and get if I get away from, you know, my spiritual health I'm in trouble. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I imagine, obviously, your life is structured very differently now. It's not like you stumble across heroin or nope. <laughs> these things, you know, or, or in a rough crowd or anything. So that, that probably nope. helps that structure. So. It does help. 
Jessica, any thoughts on that that you'd add or that sum it up? Um, that was good. That was really good. <laughs> okay. Cool. Well, let's, you know, and then there's this other component as far as, and, you know, these are heavy situations. And for like a church leader, like welcome you back and get you involved. And maybe they're meeting with you and encouraging you. But then there's a point where it's like, wow, it seems like Kelly's pretty stable. And, you know, Jessica's doing great and, and they're fixed, you know? And so great. Let's not, let's not, we don't need to talk about this anymore and we don't need to meet about it. And then it sort of just goes in the background. And then for those that may, may have a, go through a rough time or relapse, like it, they can do that in, in secret again because they've sort of created this this structure and stability in their life that maybe it's not anticipating anymore. And so, and then, like you said, it's still, even though you're years into recovery, it's still a, every 24 hours, you have to <laughs> renew that uh, that commitment to it. And so you both have made intentional effort of being very vocal about your experience, about your recovery and in a religious community where it's probably easy just to act like, you know, yeah, I was never an addict. I've just been a, a great church going girl my whole life. You know, it's tempting to maybe just sort of step into that mode and, and not talk about it. So why do you talk about it and why not just leave it in your past? Well, I did step into that for a time. I did leave it in my past and I'm excited to share this story. So I went through the repentance process. I was still in the temple. I was a few months shy of being two years clean. And, and during that process, obviously, I met with my bishop a lot. And he was really a great guy. He offered me so much love and encouragement and kindness. And I never went there and felt like I was judged. I think he handled it in a very good way. And once I was engaged to my husband, who was raised LDS, he was not a recovering addict or anything of that kind. I was speaking to my bishop one day and I was like, well, I've, I've told my husband about my past, you know, we've talked about it. And he very kindly told me that I should just leave that in the past and move on. And I can see that as you were saying, like, it was like, well, Jessica's better now. Jessica's not struggling with the urge to go use heroin. So she should just move on with her life. And I think that advice was really given from a place of love. But what happened is I got married, I moved into a new ward or branch, and I integrated into that very easily. I was a young woman's secretary, part of that presidency for five years. Right after that, I was in the Relief Society presidency, and now I teach gospel to the older kids. And I did not talk about my addiction for eight years because it was... I was told to leave it in the past. And even when I went to my new ward, I had mentioned it to my branch president and he congratulated me, but never really said anything more. So again, I was like, okay, I guess I should just leave it in the past. Maybe I shouldn't bring it up. But there was a problem in that. The problem was, I was thinking of a way I could say it. And Although on the outside, I was like this very active person. I was a big part of my community, of my ward. I was doing all these callings and stuff. A part of me inside was feeling very isolated. I felt like I was not being authentic. I felt like if people knew me, would they really love me? If people knew my history, would they still want me teaching their daughters? If people knew that I am a recovering heroin addict, would there still be that love and acceptance? And so... Although I think the advice to leave my addiction in my past was done out of love, 
I think it kind of hindered me in a way because there was always this thought in the back of my mind that I didn't fit in because people didn't know me. The thing is, is when we have isolation in whatever kind of small way it is, it hinders our ability to fully be open and authentic with other people. And when we don't be fully open and authentic with other people, it doesn't allow us to form these really great deep connections. And another thing that I think happened was I wasn't able to share the amazing story that I had been through because of the atonement of Christ. Like I had experienced this incredible change of heart. I had experienced this incredible change of character. I went from a girl addicted to heroin to a girl who was happy and thriving. And I wasn't sharing that with people. And it really hindered me for a time. And so last year, I decided at almost nine years clean to finally share my story and be more vocal about it. And I have been blown away from, first of all, the connection I felt. Even within my little ward and my community, I have connected so much more with the people I've known my entire marriage. And I've had so many people come up to me and hug me and tell me they have a grandson or a granddaughter or a parent or a child who struggles with addiction. I did not understand how far addiction reaches into people's lives. And I have been so grateful that I chose to open up and talk about it because it's really the way I can help people. I think last year when President Nelson told us that he needs our voices to help gather Israel, like we need to be open and authentic, even if it is scary, even if our life isn't what people would think it should be or or has been. It's through the vulnerability, through being open, through being completely honest about ourselves that we find connection. And it's, I think, the way that God helps us connect with other people and help those who are in need too. So. Yeah. Wow. That's powerful. And I really appreciate, you know, leaders saying something, even though maybe it wasn't the best thing to say. I think, I think in their mind, they're thinking, you know, this is sort of a, a shameful thing and maybe Jessica feels bad about it. And so her con- constantly bringing up is just going to make her feel bad. So, Hey, Jessica, don't worry about it. Like put it behind you and, and just go forward and know that you're, you're clean, you know, you've repented. Yeah. That's wonderful. But at the same time, it, it's sort of, diminishing what has become your identity as a disciple of Jesus Christ. I mean, this is what, I mean, obviously consider all the stories, especially stories of women in in the Bible of how they came into Christ, how he healed them, uh, you know, the, the shame he removed from them. And that becomes the stories of the Bible. And this is just your own story of the gospel and redemption. And, and what I'm learning from that, it's like, it's hard to share redemption, your own personal authentic redemption story without sharing those wounds in the past or those mistakes at times, but the redemption is what is so potent about your story and about our journey here in mortality that inspires others. Right. Yeah. And I think that he absolutely did it out of a place of love. It wasn't because he wanted me to hide. I just don't think he was very familiar with addiction and how it works. So that's kind of why me and Keller are doing this to help educate people and know how to handle these situations when they have someone in their office who's where I was, you know? Yeah. Kelly, what thoughts come to mind as far as uh, why you feel so strong about sharing your uh, story of recovery? I have exactly what Jessica was saying. I feel it's, it's like when you finally, after so much darkness and you have this experience of 
redemption and knowing that that the Savior really can heal, that you want to share it with people. You want people to know like, oh my goodness, this is where I was and this is what happened. I, I just almost can't stop myself from sharing. I love it. I love it so much. I feel like it's a very unique calling for me in the gathering of Israel. I've, it is what I'm meant to do. I, I know it in my bones. I know it. And it's interesting how recovery is set up so much like so much like our testimony in that the more we share our recovery with others as recovering addicts, the healthier our own recovery is. And so addicts really need to hear from recovering addicts. They need to hear their stories and recovering addicts really need to work with those who are still struggling in the disease. It's this perfect balance of recovering addicts needing addicts and addicts needing recovering addicts. There's something very unique in that relationship. And just the same reason that we have test, fast and testimony meeting every month, because it's important for us to get up and share that testimony. It works the same with recovery. As I talk about it and share my testimony of it, my own recovery is is healthier. So the more opportunity I have to do that, the better. And I work with those you know, in community 12-step recovery, but I also feel very drawn to working with those within the LDS community as well, because you know, it feels like much more like, you know, what God wants me to do and, and to, to help those struggling within the church. And so it is, oh gosh, just beautiful. It's wonderful. And it's, it's given purpose to my past, to this very messy past. All of a sudden there's purpose in it in helping others. Uh, I love that. And so let's rewind the tape a little bit, going back to that moment with the bishop where he says, Hey, don't, don't worry about this, put this behind you. What do you want? You know, after the fact that maybe temple recommends have been restored or ceilings have happened and callings are in place and you're just you're just finding some stability and it's wonderful. Like in that moment, what do you want to hear from a leader to encourage you to share? I don't think they should ever tell people to leave it in the past because that in itself kind of results in shame happening. Because what happened in my situation was I thought, oh, this is kind of a shameful thing. I shouldn't talk about it. And I think that they should just congratulate those people and and tell them they're proud and express that. But also find a way to utilize that in your ward or branch. If you have other people struggling with addiction, you know, so-and-so over here has been through the 12-step program. You line them up and put them together and offer them as a resource because just as Kelly said, we need to share our story with other people as much as those people need our story to help them. And I think there's other ways we can implement recovering addicts in our wards. Um, having the opportunity to teach the 16 to 18 year olds, I've had some really great conversations with them because these kids are where I was. They have friends who were drinking and doing drugs. And I can relate to that because I've been there. Whereas some of the older generations don't understand they've not been in those situations. And I just think every addict, just as every member, um, we all have something to share with other people. And it's often through the hard things, the trials and the obstacles that we have overcome where we find hope and faith and are able to help other people when they need that hope and faith. So that's what I think. What do you think, Kelly? <laughs> yes, I agree. I agree. I, because the atonement of Jesus Christ really is real and really does remove shame, 
you know, there we can move forward and talk about our past and talk about it with the spirit and and have these abil- this ability to reach others in a way that can help them see that, oh my goodness, if this woman who, you know, t- she can talk openly about the fact that she supported her habit with prostitution without shame, because I understand, you know, and, and have had that healing opportunity. If she can live without shame and she's open about it, then I could maybe live without shame. And shame is what really keeps people in this. It keeps them hidden. And this fear that, that for me, there's no redemption. I'm too far gone. Satan is so good at convincing people in addiction that they are the broken one. They're uniquely broken that there's no coming back for them. And so as we stand as witnesses, yes, there is coming back. There is coming back and there's coming back with freedom and there's coming back with purpose. And as they see that modeled around them, they can then have the desire to be a part of it and believe it's possible. Yeah, yeah that's powerful. So I would imagine, I remember as a as a bishop, there were, I can think of several instances where an individual goes through an addiction, find some recovery, some stability, and things are going well. And, you know, the bishop appointments sort of end and we go our own way and we're just sort of great, you know, glad you're back in the ward and serving your calling. And sometimes that individual feels like maybe there's still some lingering shame. And and I'm just thinking, would it be appropriate for a bishop to say, you know, or a leader to encourage or even a family member to say, you know, now is now your role is to reach out to others and to be involved in telling your story. You know, why don't we have you speak in sacrament meeting when, when you're ready uh, to tell your story? I mean, talk about a if you want a great sacrament talk, ask an addict to share their recovery story. Yep. I mean, it'll, people will love it. And hey, you know, those 12 step programs are still there for you. And maybe you could go back and be a sponsor for somebody like keeping them engaged in that. Because by doing that, like you said, Kelly, that you are you're helping them stay sober by staying engaged in it rather than leaving it all behind. Is that Anything you would tweak with that response? Not at all. I think that is absolutely perfect. It's the encouraging that, oh, this is now, you know, a special part of your life. This is something, this is a unique calling for you. And now you have, you're in a unique position if you choose to, to help others who are struggling in addiction in a way that others can't. And there is great purpose in that and great faith in saying, hey, you get to move forward without this shame is gone. And now you get to show people how this shame no longer follows you around. You get to approach this in a very purposeful way in helping others. And to help them see that is amazing, would be amazing. Awesome. Well, let's talk before we wrap up. Obviously, you've uh, been, you've both been very intentional, maybe in slightly different ways as far as how you share your story. And, And again, not that, you know, Kelly, you've written a book. Jessica, you have a great podcast. It's not like the bishop needs to say, well, now go start a podcast and or go write a book, right? I mean, that's just sort of where you felt guided, but it could just be like, hey, would you mind uh, speaking in the Relief Society about your experience? Or, you know, it could be those little moments just in your community of sharing. But yes. uh, maybe both of you take time to share what resources you've created, because these are phenomenal. And especially in the context of, I think of maybe a church leader who knows somebody who's like, who's coming out of recovery, but maybe still slipping up, but they're, they're getting a hold on things like say, Hey, why don't you go read this book or listen to this podcast? And they're going to find additional hope by listening to you two sort of been there. Right. So Kelly, tell us about uh, what you, what you do and the resources you've created. Sure. So, well, first of all, Jessica and I are going to be launching our podcast together and we're rebranding her podcast that she's been doing podcast and we're doing recovering out loud is going to be the name of our podcast and our first episode will be June 4th. So we are super excited about that. And 
have just lots of exciting content and and going to be touching on the addiction, but as as well as the mental health stuff. And we have fun stuff, you know, because you know life's got to be fun too. So, and also with Cedar Fort Publishing, I've created a twelve week addiction recovery boot camp that has oh, yeah. been written and tailored for the Latter Day Saint twelve step philosophy. And I have people coming in, and it is just become such a neat little community. It's called Create Recovery with the Savior. And it's a great resource, I think, for bishops and stake presidents and for those who are maybe, you know, helping someone get on a mission or or need some sort of resource that maybe has a little bit more framework than just a meeting a week with the notebook. This goes perfectly well hand in hand with the church's ARP program or any other community 12-step program. It's just, is sort of like a boost to anybody's 12-step program, all written you know, with the Latter-day Saint in mind and using the scriptures and all kinds of good stuff. So anyway, that's really exciting. That's launched recently. And that's my big project right now. So awesome. Well, I, as someone who's gone down the podcast journey, it's always better with a friend. So I'm glad she yes, so teaming much better. Up. So, anything other than the podcast uh, that you'd like to mention? No, not really. I'm excited to be doing it with Kelly. I think it's gonna be really good. I just started it because I wanted to share my story and I didn't know how, and it's really progressed over the last year. And then I met Kelly because I interviewed her and then we came up with this great idea to do a recovering out loud. And I'm excited for that. But some of my favorite moments in this journey, because really I've only been open about my addiction recovery since January of 2020 when I launched the podcast. My Relief Society asked me during quarantine to get on a Zoom meeting and just talk to the Relief Society about my experience. And even that, it's just allowed me to connect deeper with people in my own community, in my own neighborhood, who I had no idea struggled with addiction because their loved ones were in it or suffering with it in some way, you know? So I think just utilizing recovering addicts in whatever way you can, whether it's on a Zoom meeting or in Relief Society or in Sunday school, whatever, it allows those addicts to form new connections and help people. So you don't have to write a book or start a podcast to have an impact. You can impact people right around you in ways you never thought possible just by sharing. So one-on-one. Awesome. Love that. And I would imagine if a stake or ward or relief society or youth group reached out to you, you'd be open to doing a a Zoom fireside or in-person fireside or things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's the thing. And that I've, I want to make sure to highlight this before is oftentimes you can be maybe in an elders quorum or a relief society and you're just sort of like, ah, you know, they, I'm just not feeling it here. You know, I'm doesn't seem authentic. And the, even the elders quorum presence thinking, oh, I'd love to make this more authentic, but I don't know. I can't just tell people to stand up and tell about, you know, their personal stories. And so a great way to sort of prime that pump is to invite a guest speaker in model the vulnerability, talk about their story, even if it's, you know, more dramatic, like one of your stories. And then, then people feel the vulnerability, like, oh, that's what it's like. Well, I could probably do more of that. And it just sets the tone that's uh, much different in a, to sort of rejuvenate the, the quorum or relief society. So awesome. Awesome. Well, I want to, I've got one more question for you, but we'll highlight some of these comments coming in. Eric says, thank you both for sharing to help others, powerful and inspiring. I haven't proved this one, Adam, but I, I trust you. He's a friend of mine. I'm catching the tail end, but I appreciate your openness about your addiction recovery. Not sure it came up in Leading Saints or another podcast, but when those who have dealt with addiction share to help others, it's such a powerful application of Ether 1227, making weak things 
become strong. Addiction exposes our utter weakness as humans giving in to our humanness. But when we overcome the addiction and are able to lift others by sharing, the Lord is able to make our weakness. Oh, then it cuts it off. So it was I love that. A My quote, nonetheless. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Adam. All right. Last question I have for you is how has your journey through addiction, through recovery, helped you become a better disciple of Jesus Christ? It almost seems like a silly question to ask, but put words to it. And Jessica, you go first, and then Kelly will will send us off here. Okay. I think I just experienced the grace and love of Christ, even when I came to a meeting seeking help, even when I had doubts in my mind, even when I didn't know if Heavenly Father or Jesus Christ was real. He gave me love in my time of need. And going through the 12-step program, which the addiction recovery program is the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous adapted into the framework of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I really just learned how to apply the gospel in my life. It was a step-by-step guide about how to apply the atonement of Christ and I just, in my heart, and not only on the outside, but on the inside, I experienced this amazing change from someone who was lost and broken to someone who became happy, full of peace. And I am just so grateful for Jesus Christ and what he gave me. And I just, I'm grateful for my life. Like, I'm a recovering heroin addict, but I have a good marriage. I have three beautiful children and I have a lot of happiness and I'm just grateful for Christ. And I don't know if I would be where I am today if it wasn't for him and his atonement. So I'm just so grateful for that. Awesome. And Kelly, I want to make sure I don't Did you ever mention the title of your book? The title of my book is Between Monsters and Mercy, and you yes. can find it on Amazon or um, Cedar Fort Publishing as well. So, And it's so good. I mean, again, so I can't emphasize it enough. And it's a short read. It's not like this lengthy biography yeah. of, of Kelly's life. It's just so good yeah. and to the point and makes you cry. So anyways, uh, so you. Kelly, how, how has your journey helped you become a better disciple? Ah, oh, I was tearing up listening to Jessica. So I believe that it's made me a better disciple because. I have had the opportunity to get to know who the Savior is and what he can do for us and really, truly feel his love for me after so long of not experiencing that or believing in it. And then all of a sudden having this understanding and enlightening that happened and healing that's happened, it helps me see who he is. And in that, I desire to be my loyalty to him has just grown. And so because I feel his love and what he can do for me. I want to help those around me to help them see that there is freedom from, from this darkness and that there's freedom from these traps and, and that they too can have this experience in this relationship with him. Like my desire for that is true and authentic and, and my loyalty is fierce to him. That concludes my interview with Jessica Butterfield and Kelly Thompson. Definitely check the show notes out for all the resources that they mentioned, their podcast, subscribe to it. They're doing good work, and this could be a phenomenal resource for leaders, especially when maybe as a leader or as a loved one to, to an addict, you can push individuals towards these resources and help them find hope and realize that people have recovered. People do find redemption, and it's beautiful. 
And here's your charge, right? Like as leaders, we need to encourage people to tell their story. We need to set the stage for these individuals to tell their story of redemption. I mean, there's, I don't know if you've ever been in a sacrament where somebody tells their recovery story, like time stops. It is like so enriching. And uh, it just brings me back to my own personal redemption with the savior. Like we all have stories, right? Even though maybe I haven't gone through intense addiction, we all have stories of redemption. And if they can share it, we can share ours and brother so-and-so can share his and brother sister so-and-so can share hers. And then that's where unity is. This is the secret to unity is telling our vulnerable stories of redemption and addicts are a great way to do that. And it keeps them sober. Like I'm again, I don't need to rehash the points, but so important for us leaders to set the stage for them to share their story. And remember, text the word LEAD to 474747 in order to access the three most popular sessions of the Liberating Saints Library.